I really think we just need to get comfortable with the while also. I can advocate while also feeling doubtful. I can ask for more salary while also feeling nervous. I can go for this job while also wondering if I'm a little bit qualified and like that's where the power lies in working with this very normal, healthy human emotion. Welcome to the Get Clear with Crystal Ware podcast, the place where we get clear on our goals, own our worth, and learn to be the CEOs of our own lives. I'm your host, Crystal Ware, lawyer and former Fortune 500 corporate leader who found the confidence to say goodbye to a lucrative career and start my own business. Now I'm opening up the playbook and sharing everything I've learned to get you there faster. It may not be easy, but it will always be worth it because you are made for more. So put on your big girl pants, jump on board, and let's reach for the stars. Are you ready to get clear? Welcome back to another episode of Get Clear with Crystal Ware. And today on the show, we have a very amazing special guest, my friend from LinkedIn, Kelly Thompson. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm excited to actually take this off of LinkedIn and in quasi real life. Yes, it's going to be awesome. Kelly is a women's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are being made. She has coached and trained thousands of women to trust in themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. She is the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business as a Coach of the Year. And she is also the author of a critically acclaimed book, Closing the Confidence Gap. So we will dive into all of those things. But what I always like to start with is tell us what your career journey was and how it was that you came to be this amazing coach and advocate for women. Yeah. If you would have asked me when I was a little girl what I wanted to be, it was not this. In fact, we were having a conversation about the weather. And so before we hit record, and so one of the the fun things I love to tell people is actually from the time that I was a very little girl up until college, all I wanted to be was the weather girl on TV. I was fascinated with weather, fascinated with meteorology. That was my major in college. And I got to college and started taking meteorology classes, calculus, physics, science, all the stuff you have to take. And I'm like, this is terrible. And then I just kind of had this aha moment that if I wanted to be like a weather person, like, oh, I'm going to have to work the six and 10 o'clock news every night. And I'm like, I don't want to work the six and 10 o'clock news. I just want to be home. And so I switched my major. And as I switched my major, it was also about the time I, I got a job in, in college and I got a job at a bank and the bank happened to pay tuition reimbursement. So I was all in. And I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. I kind of like being in banking. And it was also about that time my mom made a career change into financial planning and investments. And I will never forget, you know, when I was a little girl, I would always ask questions like, hey, how much how much money do you make? Um, you know, stuff like that. And my mom would always be like, Kelly, that's so inappropriate. And then, you know, transform all these years later, she's a financial advisor and she's sitting down with me talking about money and how if you invest money, you'll have, you know, so much, you know, when you retire. And so I was like, this is really interesting. And so I actually ended up staying with this career in banking. I was like, I like the financial services industry. This is interesting to me. I actually started in sales and got really interested in training. And so then I moved into a training role. Eventually then, actually, I spent a good majority of my time in human resources. So recruiting, onboarding, employee relations, overseeing talent development, learning and development programs. And when I was in corporate, a majority of my roles were in HR. 
And the interesting thing was, is I spent a lot of time still talking about money. And it was always fascinating to me that I was like, how did I go from like the easiest topic to talk about, which is the weather, (laughs) to the hardest topic there is to talk about, which is money. But I think that's really where my career started was I loved talking with women about money because they would come to me and they would say things like, gosh, Kelly, this job on the posting board looks amazing, but I don't know, maybe I need another degree, maybe I need more experience. There was just so much hesitation. I also noticed that women negotiated less than men. And so even though the majority of my corporate career was in learning and development, and eventually I went to go work for actually another author and a leadership development consulting company doing a lot of leadership training, when I thought about going off on my own and I thought about what is that topic that I could talk about all day long, I always went back to women, coaching, confidence, money, asking for what they, they're worth, those sorts of things. You know, I told that story very quickly and I skimmed over all the hard parts about leaving corporate America and just jumping off on my own and all the tribulations I had during COVID to get things started. But, you know, ultimately it was those foundations that, you know, helped me start my own business where the mission is to help women advance the rooms where decisions are made because I know what it's like to work in a male-dominated industry and not see people who look like you, you know, in the senior-most leadership. And that's really what drove the mission and the conversations that I have with women today. Well, there is so much to unpack there and so many uh, similarities that didn't even jump across to us in our prior conversations. But let me just start with the, I love talking about money because honestly, I love talking about money and I don't often meet other women that seem as excited about talking about money like I do. So if we dive, I always like to talk about a little bit about the psychology of that. And do you think you became more comfortable talking about money because of uh, your household, uh, about how open your parents were? Um, or do you think you became more comfortable talking about it in your roles and in HR and leadership where you kind of just had to talk to people about money? Yeah, E, all of the above. So, you know, when I was little, you talk about money psychology and money messages. You know, money messages for me growing up when I was little was, don't talk about money. It's not polite to ask people how much they make. You know, this is just kind of a taboo topic. And I think a lot of women are raised with those sorts of messages. You know, maybe we can talk to men about money and how much they earn because maybe they're expected to be the breadwinner, but we don't talk to women about investments, et cetera, et cetera. And you're right. It wasn't until I was in college and my mom made that career change where she started to recognize the importance of women, you know, knowing what's in their savings account, investing for retirement, those sorts of things. And then when I was working for it, I worked for an investment firm before I worked for the bank. And then I was like, oh, this matters. This matters to be knowledgeable about this sort of stuff. It doesn't need to be scary. It doesn't need to be intimidating. So that was kind of like my first little baby stuff. But I will tell you, I got a lot more comfortable talking about money when I was in human resources because all day long, all I did was see salaries. And I will never forget like being a recruiter and also conducting new hire orientation in my company. I saw salaries all day long. I saw what they were, you know, offering people when I would do a new hire orientation. I saw their offer letters and what they'd been hired for. And I remember too seeing like really big numbers for these executives. And I was like, whoa, you know? But at some point, you're like, this is just a number. This is just a number. This is a number I see all day, every day. And I think, you know, that's what helped me get a little more comfortable talking about money is like, this is just, you know, numbers day in, day out. This is what the market is paying. But I saw how hesitant women were, especially to talk about money. And I want to just land this with, it's not that even as an entrepreneur, I was super comfortable in the beginning to talk about money. 
But I think the more I took in clients that continued to be scared to talk about salary, negotiate their pay, those sorts of things, the more I was like, you know what? Like talking about money should be like talking about the weather. Like the more that we can talk about money, especially as women, the more we can close the savings gaps, the more we can close the investment gaps, the more that we can close the salary gaps just by being comfortable asking for just a little bit more in your job offer, you know, being comfortable, being able to do a little bit of research online to say, am I being paid fairly? Just even those tiny steps can just get us a little bit more comfortable talking about money. And it it pays off for everyone, not just women, but their families and their children and, and everyone else around them. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, I find that it is, you know, it's not, the lack of asking or lack of negotiating all the time, but it really is that comfort level in talking about it. And it's even the smaller things that I don't think people always even understand that if you and I as friends are talking one day just in passing and career comes up, job movement, you know, life, we might not be as inclined to talk about it. Whereas I do think men might be share a little bit more about what they're actually earning. And then you have those real life data points to go along with the online research that you're doing. And I think that opens up people's minds. Um, And for me, I think, you know, I, I always ask myself how, you know, where did it come from? Where did the comfort level, because like you, um, you know, there was opportunities and times growing up where, you know, money or other issues would come up. I mean, we, did not have a lot of money growing up. And so my parents tried to ingrain some different ideas in my head and how we work through those things. But it was in law school, actually, where starting pay is posted. I mean, it is like in magazines for the top law firms. So it was very easy to say, okay, I know where you're going. So I know what you're making. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I think that started the conversation for me to be much easier in talking to my counterparts about it. And I just kind of carried that forward as a, uh, as a, uh, as a, as a, um, young corporate working professional. And I would ask people that I worked with that I knew had been at other places, like maybe they're not going to feel comfortable telling me what they're making or what their bonus is, or, you know, how much has been paid out of their bonus in the last couple of years here, but they're probably not going to be upset about talking about what their prior jobs were. So I would ask about that to start collecting more data points. And the more I talked about it, the more easy it was. But I am such a true believer that women have to get more comfortable talking about money. And once we're talking about more comfortable in our lives, talking about money, that will carry forward into our jobs and that will carry forward into our conversations um, for advancement and um, getting promoted and not just getting promoted, but getting paid more money. Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, you hit on something really, I think, key, and I'll just call it transparency. When you went into your first legal profession, it was transparent what the pay was going to be. And I love where the culture is now that there is so much salary transparency because so many states have tra- uh, salary transparency laws. I think that that's such a good way to enable this conversation about talking about money. And I get it. It's still weird and it feels awkward. And women still have all these messages about, well, maybe it's greedy to ask. I don't want to look pushy. What if, you know, they, they balk at what I ask. And I always tell them, I'm like, Hey, listen, I spent all these years in human resources. And I can honestly tell you that for HR people, they literally talk about money all day long. 
Okay. Like it's not, it's lost. It's allure. It's no longer sexy. It's just part of the job. So I'm like, here's the deal. As the, on the other end, being an HR person, I expect you to go to negotiate. I'm waiting for you to negotiate. I just know that it's going to be part of the process. So here's the thing is don't let us down. (laughs) Like we're here to talk about money. And I know you feel awkward because it's the first time. But remember, you're talking with somebody who talks about money all day long, who negotiates with people all day long. And so bringing up money, what does the job pay, negotiating, it's not going to offend them. It's literally just kind of what they do day in, day out. And it's become really unsexy for them, just like probably... Mastering a pivot table has become unsexy in your job too. You know, it's just kind of one of those things that you do day in, day out. Or for a lawyer, maybe it's reviewing contract law. You know, like, you know, it's just my day in, day out, day out thing. And so I think just normalizing that can really help women understand that this is just a normal part of the recruitment or job interviewing process. And I mean, I think even too, now that salaries are becoming more transparent to go to your employer and ask for a salary evaluation, hopefully feels a little bit less scary because there's just so much more market data out there. Um, And it just, it happens all the time. So I'm really curious. This is really a curious question. So given that you've noticed these trends and you've seen people maybe shying away from asking or negotiating more, How did you feel when you knew there was a job offer on the table with a lot of room for potential negotiation and the other party did not negotiate? Like, how did you feel as an HR professional? Yeah, well, it's interesting to be on the other end of that because as an HR professional, my job is to always be the go-between. It's the go-between of the CEO or the the leader that I was hiring for saying, you know what, how are we honestly staying within salary budget, salary bands, right? You know, what the market is paying, we're not going to go and just, you know, offer way outside what the market is paying, right? So how do we do justice to the organization in terms of making sure that all of that is an integrity? But at the same time too, I just want you to know, like, when you're like on the inside and you've had a job open for a while and you find the one. Like, it's kind of like dating. Like, a lot of logic goes out the window. You start to really want this person. And you start to imagine your organization with this person. You start to imagine this person sitting in your meetings. And so, yes, you are doing right by the organization in terms of trying to stay in those salary bands, but you're also like, okay, we need to make sure that we go with an offer to this person that they're going to say yes. Because when you're really invested in someone, it totally is like dating. You're imagining your life with them there. And so I think maybe sometimes people tell a story that like we're trying to get the candidate for the least amount of money. But I can't speak for all human resource professionals, but I just know in my own experience that we fell in love with people and we wanted to offer them a number that not only was fair, but that we didn't want them to turn down because it hurt us just as much when when clients, you know, or potential candidates turn us down because we started imagining our life with them. And so I think it was always about being that go-between about what's fair for the organization and what's really attractive for the candidate. And, um, you know, and we always knew that even though we put out our most attractive offer, that person might negotiate. So we need to be prepared for that too. So for the woman out there who is maybe really in a place of need, maybe they've been let go from a job or they're really unhappy where they are. And so they're interviewing and they really need this other job. So there's some fear in there that if I get the job offer and I counter, they're going to walk away. How often have you seen people actually walk away from a candidate who has countered when an an offer has been made? 
Yeah. Walk away. I've never seen that. But what I have seen happen is sometimes, you know, we are offering our top dollar because we want this person. And so lots of times, you know, when somebody has said, well, actually, you know, I was really looking for XYZ. I have had to tell people the offer is as stands. We want you badly, right? We're imagining life with you, but this is our our top dollar. I've never withdrawn an offer and said, no, you can no longer have this job. Like that, that feels weird and icky. And if that happens to you when you're trying to negotiate, I think I would maybe thank your lucky stars you didn't get that job because that could be a clue of the culture of what it's like to work for the organization. But no, I mean, like there were times where I genuinely wanted to, and I'm like, this is our best and final offer. And we hope you take it. We don't want to lose you. But no, I've never been like, well, because you asked for more, like, no, like we're going to, we're going to pull the offer like that. I've never done that. But I want to speak to the other side though. Sometimes we do find ourselves, I know I've had a lot of clients in the tech industry who have really struggled in the last year because they've been part of layoffs. And so, you know, sometimes they have to do, they have to take a bridge job. You know, they need something now. And so I think it's identifying, okay, like, yes, you you have the job that you want, you have the salary that you want, but is there a bridge job? Something that you would feel good about saying yes to? What is a minimum salary you would say yes to? Or maybe it's you know a role in a different industry that would allow you to maybe gain a different perspective or learn more skills while you're kind of looking for you know the next right job. And so I think it is sometimes totally normal in you know environments where we've you know had some layoffs in certain industries where folks do take a bridge job that may not be ideal, but it's just you know navigating them until they can the industry can recover and they can get you know, what they want next. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's really helpful because what I hear a lot from people is that fear that if I don't accept what's on the table, they're going to go to candidate B. And I feel in reality, the chances of that happening are less than 5%. I mean, I don't, I yes, you may not get more, you may not get the counter, but if you don't ask, you never know. And I think it's always worth asking so that you feel fully confident in going forward, that you feel like you've made the best and most informed decision, that you've tried to advocate on your behalf, and you can make a decision with all the information on the table. And I don't think that people are going to be angry that you ask for more money and say, nope, sorry, we have a second backup candidate and we're going to go for them. Um, so I just think hearing that for somebody in your position who's been out there and working with people and working in HR for so many years is um, can allay that fear a little bit of people from just asking that you're not going to get turned down for that. And I do agree, the bridge job, not always ideal, but hey, if you have to pay the bills, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So, you know, there is no shame in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to give folks another example. Just this happened recently. So now I'm kind of on the other end where I'm coaching my clients on negotiating. And I had a client in that exact she was ready to leave her um, current organization. She found, you know, um, a company that, you know, of course she fell in love with. Because again, you know, we fall in love with the jobs and we start imagining ourselves in the job. But remember, there's humans on the other end. We fall in love with you too. And it took, I believe, four rounds of negotiating to get her final package. So that's just another thing that I want to normalize. Like, again, like, 
people who who are in human races human resources are not shocked by negotiation and if they are it's probably their first day so <laughs> just know that sometimes especially in these higher level roles when we're like dealing with like vice president level or senior director and above it can be normal to go through a few rounds of negotiation to get the base salary correct perhaps some bonus or upside correct some um, if there's investment or equity in the company if there's vacation if you're negotiating like a professional development budget like it can go a couple rounds. And that can be very, very normal. And I saw, I see that now in coaching my clients who are higher level, but I also was part of that in human resources where it it can take a few rounds to get to the right number. And that's just too highly invested individuals, you know, going back and forth with one another. And you as a lawyer can speak to that, right? Like if only all negotiations ended on the first handshake, right? Sometimes these things take a couple rounds and that's normal and that's okay. I just want to pause and say thank you to all the amazing people tuning in and making this show a success. And to share some exciting scoop, I am opening up for the first time ever one-on-one coaching. We have two options available, the Executive Edge two-week program and the Career Catalyst six-week program, which will use my proprietary Earn It framework. If you're ready to propel your professional journey, crush your salary goals, or need someone to coach you through a big career decision, let's conquer it together. Limited spots for unlimited empowerment. Links to sign up will be in the show notes and in the link tree on my Instagram and LinkedIn site. See you there. Yes, I love that. I love that because we don't have to rush it. Like people always feel... The things need to be concluded quickly and wrapped up quickly. But you're, you know, I, I always like to look at going into a job while there are certainly times it can be a three, a five-year, you know, trajectory. Let's pretend like it's going to be our job for the next 10 or 20 years or, or we're, this is where we're going to retire from. Get everything you can. Like, you're not going to have the opportunity in most cases to have some huge jump unless you're taking a massive promotion. And even then the jumps are usually not the same as moving to a new job. Um, And so I always say like, get as much as you can, ask for everything. And that might take time. And there is really no rush. You don't need to rush. And I, and also on the other side, I don't really love it when companies are like, you know, you got three days to decide. I mean, sometimes you need a little time to reflect and think about it. And I think to your earlier point, if a company you know, unless there's a reason, like a logical reason why they need a rush answer, I think that probably tells you something too about them. If they're trying to rush it through, like put the pressure on you for some timeline, that may not feel like the right fit for me personally. I I just don't love that. In fact, I was rushed one time and they did have a logical reason. So I felt, I felt like, okay, I need to give them an answer for these reasons. Um, and then I needed to join for these quickly for these reasons. And, um, I missed some of my stock, uh, my stock vesting by five days. I left five days too early, but because of everything going on, I mean, it all worked out in the end. Like the bigger picture of the job was, you know, meaningful, but it was like, I could have waited five days if I would just taken a little more time to sit back and look at everything (laughs) I miscalculated. And, uh, it wasn't a huge number, but that hurt. So I always say, don't rush it. And to, you know, what Kelly just said is so important, everybody. You can go back and forth several times. Now, I wouldn't advise people to come back with a new, you know, 
piece of the pie that you're you're negotiating, like all of a sudden, well, you didn't get this. Okay, well, now I'm going to ask for something new. That is going to irritate people. But if you have said, these are my points, one, two, three, four, and you're working on two are good, but two more, you need to go back and forth. Feel okay about that, folks. It's all right. That is normal. And when we understand what is normal, then we feel more comfortable and more confident continuing to ask and respectfully moving forward. Um, So I think that's really, really great. I wanted to ask you about something else really interesting that I saw on your website. You noted something about your Enneagram. And I was curious if you think that Enneagram is significant and can inform people in how to better themselves in career and or how you coach them. Yes. Okay. So let, for folks who might be hearing this word for the first time, what is the Enneagram? It's it's a personality test and it tells you what motivates you. Um, you know, what, is, what causes your driving behaviors. It's also going to give you some clues about some basic fears that hold you back. Um, yes. Short answer is, is I refuse to work with anyone one-on-one who is unwilling to like, it's just part of my process. Like if you want to work with me, like during your intake call, you know, when we're doing a little Q and A filling each other out, like, I'm just going to say like, you know, the way that we accelerate results is to take an Enneagram assessment. Because what I find is that it will, it just speeds things up because like, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Um, I, a lot of Enneagram 8s find me. Um, I'm an Enneagram 5 for anybody who knows what that means when they're listening. And so that means I am motivated by the need to be capable and competent and to manage my time, resources, and energy. And I fear people coming in and depleting that. Do you know your Enneagram number, Crystal? I'm not sure, but it's either a 5 or 8. And I didn't get all the way through the book, but it is a 5 or 8. Okay. So I'm pretty sure. Okay. So like, let's just, for example's sake, I do work with a lot of Enneagram 8s. Enneagram 8s are motivated by the need mm-hmm. to... Uh, be in control and to avoid vulnerability. And so one of the things that they constantly want to avoid is being seen as weak, showing vulnerability in terms of emotions or putting their teams in a vulnerable state. And so they love to take control of lots of things. And so lots of times when my clients come to me, they are leaders. They are exhausted. They are burnt out. They are overwhelmed. And sometimes they've hit the point in their career where they have pushed as hard as they can and now people are no longer listening. This is this is the challenge of the eight. Well, sometimes when they start to recognize that they are an eight, they have this aha moment pretty quickly where they're like, oh, I've said yes to all of these things because I am capable. I do get things done very, very quickly. I have a high capacity for work. And because I like to be in control, I want to be in charge of all the things. Well, they've recognized that they haven't used a lot of discernment in terms of what they've said yes to and what they've said no to. And also sometimes their relationships suffer because they are in such a driving mode that they attempt to connect with people through productive and results versus maybe the more softer and vulnerable sides of relationship building. And so by becoming aware to that, like we just accelerate those results so much faster. We can start to recognize, oh, I have like this driving need to say yes to things. Well, why is that? Is that true, right? Is that really um, going to give me the happiness and results that I look for? Is this just a story that I'm believing? And so that's why I love the Enneagram is when we can start to understand why we're doing the things that we do 
now we can make some conscious and intentional changes. You know, it's a little bit different than like the DISC or the Myers-Briggs or even the, you know, Gallup Finder. Those might tell you like what kind of car you're driving or what seat you like to sit in. But I love the Enneagram because it's like, well, here's what's under the hood. Here's why your car is performing the way it's performing. And when we know why, now we can go in and we can tweak some things. We can make some adjustments so that you're running a little bit better and you're not burning yourself out. Yes, I love that. I love that. That is that is so fascinating. And I, I'm penciling that in because I feel like we could have a whole nother episode on that. Yes, we could. <laughs> talk about how this could help people. Um, so on that, since you're you're you just mentioned that and how it works with leaders and how they may show some vulnerabilities or some other issues that are, you know, cropping up for leaders. I was curious, do you think that everybody has the capacity to be coached to being a leader? Or do you think some people may just be stronger or better suited for individual contributor type roles? I would answer that two ways. I think that if people are willing, they can be coached. Willingness is huge. And that's actually one of the um, conversations that I very frankly have with people before they engage in one-on-one coaching. So sometimes people come to me because their company um, is recommending them or paying for the coaching. Sometimes people come to me on their own and, and lucky for them, their company still pays for the coaching. So just a tip there when we're talking about money, don't be afraid to submit reimbursement for professional development, wink, wink. Um, but the question I ask someone is, are you willing for me to tell you things that may be uncomfortable, that you may need to change, that your favorite way of doing something may no longer be working for you. Like, are you willing and open to really go inside and look at just some deeply held beliefs or way of doing things and, you know, have me offer you alternate ways of looking at things that might, you might want to throw something at me in the beginning, because I think willingness is key. Like we can't make anybody a leader if they're not willing. We can't performance management to manage someone into a better performance if they're not willing. We can't coach someone up into a leader if they're not willing. Now, that being said, I have coached some leaders who through the process, they're like, you know what? I love doing. I love being in the work. I love being in the weeds. I love the gold stars. I love cracking the code. And that's okay. And like, honestly, they have so much peace in owning the fact that they love the doing. Because I think in our culture, we just expect that everybody should be a manager. And so, you know, what they do is they say, okay, because they're so afraid. Like, if I don't say yes to a promotion, then maybe they'll let me go or something. But, you know, sometimes they're coaching. People just come back and be like, no, I love being a consultant. I love being an individual contributor. And like, they feel so much peace at the end when they just own that and they communicate that to their employer. So, you know, that wasn't just a black and white answer. But I think that those are some questions that we need to ask ourselves is, is the person willing um, to be coached? Does the person even want a leadership position? And I think at the end of the day, that's where I really work with folks is to really get clear on what their unique talents and skills are so they can know, you know, what, what truly lights me up? What do I love? Is it coaching people or doing the work? Yeah. And I would say as a young professional, I didn't understand that. I mean, I, I talked to somebody at um, my office one time that was, you know, the rock star of the group, the group leader was going to retire. And I was asking, are you going to take over managing the team? And they were like, absolutely not. And I just baffled me. I didn't understand. Like that's career advancement. Why would you not want to take over the team? But it was very clear. He didn't want to listen to complaining. He didn't want to have the interpersonal issues. He didn't want to take a, what he perceived as a small raise to manage all these people. And he just wasn't interested in that, even though he was, you know, the sharpest guy at the technical um, resource. 
And um, his job has flourished. He's still at the same company and that was almost 10 years ago. So it didn't hurt him. He continued to get raises. He continued to land big clients and it was no problem at all. Um, But I also think that it's an issue that we have with large companies in general of just like, what do we do with these people that are thriving and how, where else can we go with them? I think one of the great things that I have personally seen at really big companies is trying to move people around in departments. Um, That also usually does involve some kind of management, but a lot of times I've seen where they'll ask, even kind of push people, you know, you're really good at this job. Why don't you get a technical skill in this other department or this other group, which is a great way. But I just think by and large at, let's call them large companies, I don't know, 5,000 employees and above, that's just the next logical step in the way that they incentivize you with money. And I think that's harmful, you know, because it, you know, it's hard for people to say no to some more money when they feel like there's not another opportunity to get that kind of raise. Um, And it's just not for everybody. Um, So I just think it's always a fascinating discussion of how we are raising up leaders and what kind of culture we have around that. Um, The next thing I wanted to talk about um, was imposter syndrome. And I'm sure you see this and talk to women about this a lot. But what I want to understand is what your feelings are on why we are talking about this so much as women and why we don't hear about this that much with men. Yeah. Well, let's just go back. So the imposter phenomenon was coined in like 1978 by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And they wanted to understand why do women who are high achieving feel like they're going to be found out or that all their success is the result of luck or they're not really qualified to be at the rooms that they're in. Okay. So let's just pause. 1978. They're doing this study. Who's in the rooms? It's men. Um, It was only four years earlier that women earned the right to have their own money and to pull out their own credit without a male cosign. Okay, so like bracket that in your mind. That study came out four years after women could like borrow their own money. They were not in the meeting room. So of course they were feeling this way. You know, I think the term has become more common. It's become more popular. And I write in the book, Closing the Confidence Gap, that this is a both and issue. In fact, this is how I kind of opened the book because I titled the book before I actually knew that there was a study called The The Confidence Gap that came out of Wharton. And what they said was um, they wanted to understand why. Why do men just more easily advocate? Why do men not seem to struggle with this sort of self-doubt? And so what they did was they they pulled in a group and they gave this group a standardized test. And they did not tell them how they did on the test, but they told this group, they say, based on how you think you did on the test, you're supposed to go um, advocate for your performance in this potential role in this hypothetical company. Well, as we can all imagine, guess who did a better job advocating for themselves and their perceived test performance? The men. Guess who did a little better on the test? The women. And so what the researchers said was, well, well, maybe if we just start telling women they did better, then their confidence will follow suit. And I actually argue that's not going to cut it. And in closing the confidence gap, I say to see more women achieving and advocating in their full potential, we need more women in the rooms where decisions are made. And that includes in government, that includes at the top of organizations. Right now, only 28% of C-suite positions are women. And research shows that the more we see women in leadership positions using their own ways and means and personalities of self-advocacy, the more tolerant we are of many different leadership styles. And so I say, I like to call it imposter feelings. This is not a syndrome. We are not sick. Imposter feelings, I think, are caused twofold. 
It's a both hand. Yes, it's caused when people have experienced more racial discrimination, when they don't see themselves in the rooms where decisions are made, when they work in high-performance cultures where brilliance is prized above all other all else. So yeah, the cause is systemic. However, this is a very real feeling. And I don't, there's some articles out there that are like, stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. Okay, fair enough. Yes, there are some systemic causes, but people feel this deeply. They feel what it feels like to be like, oh, I can't apply for that job. I'm not qualified. I need, you know, one more certification or I'm in this room. I'm about to give this presentation. I'm going to be found out. Like, I want to honor that experience. So it's like, how do we support women while also recognize that there are some systemic changes that need to be made? And that's what the book addresses. The systemic changes in terms of, you know, the distribution of labor, how we delegate and who we delegate to, to unpaid um, workload of women, you know, likability biases, gender pay gaps. That's all things we need to fix. However, like what I argue in one of the chapters and what I talk about a lot with my clients is, is everyday doubt being relabeled as imposter syndrome. Because doubt is a normal, healthy human emotion. Doubt is something we feel anytime that we edge our comfort zone. Of course, you're going to feel doubt before you speak up. Of course, I'm going to feel doubt before I hop on a podcast. Of course, I am going to feel doubt when I'm applying for a job. Of course, I'm going to feel those jitters that night before I start my first job. But let's just recognize that doubt is normal and healthy, and not all doubt is imposter syndrome. I kind of define imposter syndrome as like when doubt becomes so persistent, it's self-sabotage. And so it's really, how do we just start to normalize doubt? Because I've interviewed leaders like Indra Nooyi, who's the CEO of Pepsi. And I asked her about her, you know, rise from Motorola to, you know, Pepsi. And I'm like, did you ever experience doubt with all these big promotions? And she's like, oh yeah, every day, all the time. Like she just was like, yeah, it was normal. So it's not that great leaders don't feel doubt. It's that they've learned how to lead and advance in their careers while also feeling doubt. And so I really encourage, yes, we need to change things systemically, but I really think we just need to get comfortable with the while also. I can advocate while also feeling doubtful. I can ask for more salary while also feeling nervous. I can go for this job while also wondering if I'm a little bit qualified. And like, that's where the power lies in working with this very normal, healthy human emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, you'll, you'll probably just find, I know not to throw out numbers for everybody that have different basises, you know, cause that can be dangerous, but just as a round number, you know, I was talking to somebody recently who has been working at the same company for over 15 years, is highly qualified in a great middle management job at a company that has over 50,000 employees, okay? She's making $100,000. And I said, that's severely underpaid. And she just couldn't fathom having the confidence or the experience of saying, I need to get a 20 to 30% raise. She literally could not fathom that. And I said, I promise you, I have seen the numbers. I have worked with many people. I've talked to many people. You are significantly underpaid for what you are doing, the experience you have and where you are. But her personality, her experiences, and I'm going to say probably the bosses and leaders and mentors that she has had have not promoted her in the way that she needs to be promoted to be supported in that way or have the belief that that's possible. And, you know, we were talking through some scenarios and it's just 100% imposter syndrome. And I couldn't help but think that if I was sitting with a male counterpart along the way, one, it just wouldn't be as likely that somebody would be in this position as a man. And two, they just don't have the same feelings 
and we're not talking to them about those things. And so sometimes I think it's really hard to balance that out. Like, you know, the differences in men and women, the genetic differences and how we think about things differently and what our experiences are. Um, But it's very clear that men are not experiencing the imposter feelings in the way that women are, even even when they're the same. Yeah. And I think that's hard to reconcile. And then also, you know, people of color have traditionally been underpaid. And, um, you know, just sometimes I think it's like we have this mindset that like, well, if I just work hard enough, people will recognize us. But this is where I want to link back in the Enneagram. So if this were my client, I would know what their Enneagram number is. And I would tell you that there are nine reasons why people may not be asking or people may not you know, maybe playing small. And so like, let's just say if it's, you know, an Enneagram one who wants to be good, right, and perfect, they may not want to tarnish this image of perfection of like, I'm the good little worker who's never going to ruffle any feathers. For an Enneagram two who wants love and approval, it's like, oh gosh, if I ask, people are going to be so upset with me, right? For Enneagram three, they may want to avoid failure. If I ask and they say, no, I'm going to just, it's going to be a total failure. I mean, and so on and so forth. And so I think that that's why like really understanding what motivates you can um, number one, motivate you to take action just like you did. You provided the data and the research, but then two, going inward to say, okay, what is keeping me from asking? Because you're right, this goes back into that both and thing. There are company cultures and structures that are unfair that have probably caused her some, you know, issues around not asking. Maybe she asked in the past for other things and that wasn't, you know, rewarded well. So it's like, how do we address those things? But also like, let's own our part in that and to say, okay, what is personally holding me back? And, you know, what do I need to do differently? What do I need to believe about myself differently to get what I deserve? Absolutely. What else do you want to share about the book that would help people get a little feel for what, um, what you talk about in there? Yeah. Well, I kind of gave a little highlight, you know, it's called closing the confidence gap And here. I'm going to tell you what it's not. I think a lot of people see it and they pick it up and they're like, Ooh, this is going to be full of just confidence tips and, you know, empty platitudes. And it's not, it is heavy in storytelling. Um, it has real examples of my own life. I'm not just telling you this stuff because I figured it out. I literally wrote the book I needed to read. I wrote the book because I struggled with confidence. I landed myself in wrong relationships. Um, and, you know, I landed myself sometimes in unfair work positions because I struggled with it. And so it's not just empty platitudes. In fact, I mean, there's really personal stories in there about like my divorce and how I called off a wedding. And a lot of that was just because, you know, I was just totally out of alignment what I even stood for in my life. And that's where I start the book is to really help women define what they stand for. It's just, a, you know, um, it is core values work, but when we know what we value, and we know what we stand for, then we won't fall for anything anymore. And like giving that like firm grounding, I think can really help us, you know, boost our confidence because now we have a clearer picture of what we should say yes and no to based on what we stand for and who we want to be in the world. Um, and so, you know, there is a lot of that kind of deeper work in there as well in terms of getting clear on what your unique talents are, how, what your unique approaches to the world, like what happens to your energy and how, if you start paying attention to your energy, it can give you clues as to what your best skills and genius zones are. And when you can start to get clear about what you offer the world, what you stand for, you know, those unique things about you that, you know, are assets, not liabilities, um, it can really provide a lot of confidence. And so I do then talk about like, you know, the unpaid workload of women, how women offer at work get more non-promotable tasks. And so how do you set boundaries? How do you shift from doer to leader so that you can accelerate in your organization without getting overburdened? 
I talk a lot about, you know, how do you trust yourself? Because I think as a woman leader, we're going to get lots of advice. I still get lots of advice and I even run my own business. I got some well, you can't see my fingers, quote unquote, well-meaning advice three weeks ago. And thank goodness I have a filter for that by like recognizing how my body responds to that or my values or my skills to be like, you know what? 10 years ago, I would have chased that advice and be like, oh, he's right. I should totally do that. And now I'm like, no, you know? So it just gives you some of those tools and those filters for recognizing what is happening systemically. But here's some actual tools and strategies that you can use to, you know, succeed in spite of it, to be more clear about who you are, to own your unique skills and talents, to trust yourself and really take the brave next steps that that matter to you. I love that. And what I hear, Kelly, is that this book is full of the really important things and the takeaways for what somebody has lived, learned, and loved. Three L's that bring real, real meaning for guidance and mentorship through the book. And not just, as you said, the platitudes and, you know, talking uh, points that you could just Google. Um, And so when you come from a place of experience and um, value and alignment, it, it just comes across differently. So everybody check the book out. This will be brilliant, life-changing. We're still early in 2024 and moving towards our goals and what is in store. And I believe, I truly believe that this year can change everybody's life because at any time we can make small changes that are going to shift And by the end of the year, our life is going to look completely different. It's going to look so much better. Anybody and everybody can accomplish that in one year, okay? So keep going, keep staying motivated. Thank you so much for all of this, Kelly. I, I, We really have to get you back. I have so much more, some notes and questions. And you can find Kelly at Instagram, Kelly Ray Thompson and LinkedIn, Kelly Ray Thompson. I don't know if you can see my connections on LinkedIn, but if so, she is on there and otherwise it will be in the show notes. So thank you so much. If you need coaching, if you need guidance or an amazing speaker, Kelly is your girl. So thank you, everybody. Remember, you are made for more. Keep getting clear on what your goals are, what you want out of life and keep going. The It's up to you and the rest of what you're looking for is out there. All right, until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to create a career you love, get the salary you deserve, and build the confidence to live life on your own terms, sign up for my free newsletter where you'll get actionable tips to raise your worth, build your wealth, create freedom, and create a life you absolutely love. Head over to crystalwaremedia.com to sign up or click the link in the show notes and join thousands of others making their dreams a reality. Whether you're just embarking on the journey or well on your way, the Worthful newsletter has something for you. See you next week.